Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is dedicated by Bev Jacobson to the memory of Bentley Phillips, Benjamin Bensvi Vigital, her beloved father and a wonderful doctor who touched the lives of many. Hi, my name is Wendy Amsalem. I teach Talmud at Yeshiva Maharat and also at the Drisha Institute. And uh, over the next 18 minutes or so, we will be looking together at some of the Mishnahs in Tractate Shabbat. Shabbat is the longest tractate in the order of festivals. And in fact, it's actually one of the longest tractates in all of the six volumes of Mishnah. It has 24 chapters. And one of the reasons why it is so long is that there are so many different laws of Shabbat. I'm particularly excited to be doing this podcast because I really love learning Mishnah. Um, I've had several great learning partners, or Chavrutot, over the years, and uh, we've studied lots of different tractates. Um, I'll say that some of the most fun people that I've learned Mishnah with are bat mitzvah age girls, and so if there are any bat mitzvah age girls listening to this recording, I'm especially excited that we'll be learning these Mishnayot together. In the course of this podcast, we're going to discuss several different types of prohibited work on Shabbat, or works that are prohibited on Shabbat. Um, We'll also talk about some practices that are not in and of themselves prohibited, but are prohibited because they might lead to other types of works. And uh, we'll also focus specifically on some Mishnahs in the 23rd chapter, in the first chapter, and in the sixth chapter of Masachat Shabbat. In chapter 7, there's a discussion of the 39 different types of prohibited works that one is not allowed to do on Shabbat. These 39 different categories of work are derived from the different types of work that were done in order to build the tabernacle when the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness. And uh, because they had to engage in these types of works in order to build the tabernacle, these types of works kind of become definitionally what it means to work, and therefore they become the categories of prohibited types of work to do on Shabbat. Uh, The 39 categories are referred to as avot melacha, kind of almost like the father categories, and uh, types of work that are similar to those types of work but aren't exactly the same are called toladot, sort of subcategories. Different chapters are kind of dedicated to describing some of these different types of work. So as an example, in chapter 11, there's a discussion of the prohibition of carrying or throwing things from the public domain to private property. Chapter 12 talks about the prohibition of building things on Shabbat, the prohibition of plowing or pruning on Shabbat, the prohibition of writing on Shabbat. Chapter 13 describes the prohibition of weaving or of bleaching or of dyeing wool or of spinning and so forth on Shabbat. Um, One of the things that's very interesting in Tractate Shabbat is that in addition to all the different types of work that are prohibited because they are actually prohibited works, there's also a discussion of other types of things that are prohibited, not because they in and of themselves are violations of Shabbat, but rather because there's a concern that a person who does these things might come to then do one of the prohibited types of work. So as an example, the very first Mishnah in the 23rd chapter describes the following situation. We're told, A person may ask of his friend to borrow some pitchers of wine or pitchers of oil. 
So I guess the idea is that it is Shabbat, and I suddenly discover that I don't have as much food as I, as I needed. So I can go to my next-door neighbor, and I can ask to borrow some wine or borrow some oil with the assumption that I will kind of bring back wine and oil after Shabbat. But the Mishnah says, I can do this, bilvad shalo yomar lo halveni. But I can't use the language of make a loan to me. Um, halveni is kind of the more technical word that you would use to, um, usually to borrow money. And so I, I shouldn't go to my neighbor and say, please make a loan to me of oil or wine. But I can say, you know, can I borrow some oil or wine? And uh, we're told also, A woman can go and borrow some loaves of bread from her friend, but again, she shouldn't use this language of make a loan to me of loaves of bread. Instead, she should just say, can I borrow some? And the assumption is that if, if I were to use this more technical language of make a loan to me, that might cause the person who is lending me the oil or wine or bread, it might cause them to kind of want to write down the loan. Because if people... Uh, lend money, they would sort of make a notation of the loan, so that way they would remember that they had lent the money and be able to ask for it back. And so the fear is that if I use this kind of technical language of make a loan to me, then the person might write down that uh, Wendy owes me two loaves of bread. Uh, And because I don't want to come to be the cause of a person writing on Shabbat, I shouldn't use this technical language, but I can say, you know, can I borrow some bread? That would be okay. And then the Mishnah goes on to say, If, let's say, my neighbor who's lending me the oil or the wine or the bread doesn't quite trust me, then I will just remember to come back the next day with oil, wine, or bread that I'm returning. What I can do is I can I can leave something with them. I can leave my sweater with them. I can leave some sort of garment with them. I shouldn't call it collateral, because that, again, might make it seem too much like a real loan. But if it seems that my neighbor is hesitant to part with a loaf of bread or a bottle of wine, I can just kind of drop my sweater on the couch in their home and uh, kind of leave it there with the assumption that when I come back looking for my sweater, I will then also bring back the oil and the wine and the bread, and that will encourage them to, uh, to make the loan. The Mishnah goes on to say, Also, the same thing would happen if, let's say, the eve of Passover, back when the temple was still standing, people would bring the Paschal offering on Passover Eve. And if Passover Eve falls out on Shabbat, and I had neglected to purchase an animal for my Paschal offering before Shabbat began, the Mishnah says, I can go to a person who has extra animals and I can leave my garment with them and uh, take the animal, offer it up as a sacrifice. And then after both Shabbat and the Passover holiday have ended, I can then go back, retrieve my garment, and pay for the animal. So, uh, so this Mishnah is an example of the the work itself is not prohibited, or the action is not really a prohibited work. It's not problematic to borrow wine or bread or oil. It's not problematic to borrow an animal. But we're worried that if I use the sort of technical language of make a loan to me of this, I might then cause the lender to write things down. And so therefore, I can only borrow it as long as I don't make it sound like an official loan, and then the person will not come to do uh, prohibited work. Another interesting question that emerges in the Mishnah that relates to this 
category of work that is less clear-cut, but it's not, not totally clear that what one is doing is a prohibited type of work on Shabbat, is a debate that appears actually in the very first chapter of Tractate Shabbat. This is a debate that has to do with what happens if I set a particular process in motion on Friday afternoon, right? It's the sort of work that I couldn't do on Shabbat. It would be prohibited if I did it on Shabbat. But what happens if I set it into motion on Friday afternoon and then I don't have to do anything else? It just continues on its own. Is that also considered to be somehow a prohibited kind of work on Shabbat? As an example, in the first chapter of Tractate Shabbat, in uh, the fifth Mishnah, we're told, Beit Shammai Omrin, Ein shorin diyo v'samamanim v'charshinim, ela kadeshi yishorumi v'odyom. Beit Shammai, there were uh, sort of two main schools of thought at the time, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. The school of Shammai taught that one should not soak things that could be made into ink or, uh, or dyes or other types of legumes. One shouldn't begin to soak them on Friday afternoon unless they will be sort of fully soaked and the dyes and inks and so forth will be fully prepared while it is still day before Shabbat begins. But the other school, the school of Hillel, say that no, it's totally fine to begin the soaking process on Friday and have it continue on into Shabbat because I'm not actually doing anything on Shabbat. It's kind of continuing its work on its own. Whereas Beit Shammai think that even if I'm not actually doing anything, I shouldn't cause work to be done on Shabbat, even if it's not being done by any person. They continue their debate in the next Mishnah. We're told the school of Shammai say, You shouldn't put bundles of flax into an oven in order to dry them out. Unless they will sort of be fully heated and dried out, while it is still day before Shabbat begins. So you shouldn't begin the process on Friday afternoon unless you can finish it. You also shouldn't place wool into a, a vat of dye, unless it will sort of receive its color, be fully dyed before Shabbat begins. But Beitila permitted. The school of Shammai also teaches that you shouldn't set traps for animals. Um, unless the animals will be trapped by the traps while it is still daytime before Shabbat begins. But Beitil permitted. And this seems to be one of the, the debates that kind of continues through out other passages of Mishnah in Tractate Shabbat, this question of whether it is permitted to kind of begin a sort of work on Friday afternoon and have it continue on on its own, or whether, uh, you know, it's important that the work be totally finished before Shabbat begins. There are many other interesting discussions in Tractate Shabbat. Uh, the second chapter of Tractate Shabbat is called the chapter of Bamem Madlikin, with What Do We Light? And this chapter is actually recited by many congregations on Friday night as part of the prayer services of Shabbat, usually right between Kabbalat Shabbat and the evening prayer. In many congregations, they actually read through all of the different Mishnayot in this particular chapter. The chapter mostly has to do with what kinds of oils and wicks one is permitted to uh, use for one's Shabbat candles. The fear was that if the wicks and the oil don't light easily and burn 
smoothly, a person might be tempted to kind of fuss with them on Shabbat, and that would be uh, like lighting the candle on Shabbat again, and that would be problematic. One last chapter that I wanted to talk about is um, the sixth chapter of Tractate Shabbat, mostly because it has one of my most favorite Mishnahs in it. Um, The sixth chapter is basically all about what kinds of items a person can wear when they go outside on Shabbat. The idea is that a person is not allowed to carry things from private property to public property unless uh, a particular structure called an Erev has been built. The whole next uh, tractate of Mishnah is all about the building of these structures, tractate Erevim. But um, if we assume that an Erev has not been built, a person in general is not supposed to carry from private property outdoors into public property, but one is allowed generally to wear things, right? Wearing isn't carrying. So one of the questions of this chapter is, what kinds of things count as ornaments that you are wearing, and what kinds of things count as uh, things that you're carrying instead, right? Just because it's not in your hand doesn't mean that you're not carrying it. You know, wearing a backpack on my back would count as carrying that backpack even though it's not, I'm not holding it in my hands. Um, so one question that the chapter addresses is which kinds of things count as ornaments and which kinds of things count as burdens that you're carrying? And another sort of related question is, even if something is an ornament, is it the type of ornament that I would be likely to take off in public? Because if it's the type of ornament that I would be likely to take off in public, then there's a concern that I might come to take it off and show it to somebody, or it might fall off and I might pick it up, and then I would come to sort of carry it in my hand in public property, and that would that would be also a violation of Shabbat. So first of all, we'd want it to be an ornament, and then even if it was an ornament, we'd want it to be the sort of thing that I am unlikely to either take off or have fall off, such that I won't come to carry it. The opening of chapter 6 kind of discusses all these different types of hair ornaments that went, that women wear and other types of jewelry, and uh, whether these things, first of all, are ornaments or not, and then also whether the woman is likely to remove them in public and come to carry them. Um, but after an extended discussion of women's ornaments and the types of things that women would wear, in uh, Mishnah 4, the Mishnah turns to men and what kinds of things men can wear as ornaments. So Mishnah 4 begins by saying, Lo ha'ish lo ba'ramach. A man, when a man goes outside on Shabbat, should not be wearing neither a saif, which is a sword, nor a keshet, which is a bow, nor a tris, which is some sort of shield, nor an alah, which is a baton, and uh, not, not a spear either, not a romach, which is a spear. And if a man goes out wearing one of these different types of, of items, he has violated Shabbat and must bring a sin offering. Rabbi Eliezer disagrees with this first opinion in the Mishnah, and he says, no, it's actually totally fine for the man to go out wearing these different items because, he says, these types of items, these weapons, they're not really the man who's wearing them on Shabbat is not wearing them in order to carry weapons. He's wearing them because they are his ornament, right? It's part of his kind of official costume, right? The sword that he's wearing, it's, it's decorative, right? It's a decorative sword, it's a decorative shield, and so therefore it is, it's not something that he's carrying, it's just something that he's wearing as part of his, his attire. So that's Rabbi Eliezer's opinion, and therefore he thinks it's totally fine. The sages, though, say back to Rabbi Eliezer, we're told, the Chachamim Omrim, Inan Actually, 
they disagree. They say these types of weapons are not ornaments. They are only there for negative purposes. They're only some sort of disgrace or something negative that, that a person would be carrying. And the way that we know that weapons are not there for ornamental purposes, but only for destructive purposes, is because, the, as the rabbis say, they quote the verse from Isaiah, At the end of days, when peace comes, people will beat their swords into plows, and they will beat their spears into pruning hooks. No nation will lift up sword against nation. They will no longer learn to go to war with one another. And so the sages basically respond by saying, if these different items, the sword and the spear and so forth, if they were really ornaments, then Isaiah would not say that at the end of days, these ornaments will be beaten into other things. Instead, you could just continue to wear them as ornaments. But because the uh, messianic vision is that eventually the swords will be beaten into plows and the spears will be beaten into pruning hooks, that lets us know that, in essence, these items are not decorative. They're seen as weapons, and weapons are never going to be a decoration, and therefore it is not an ornament that a man can wear outside on Shabbat. I always think it's nice if you can take a verse, you know, from beautiful prophecy of Isaiah and use it to learn a law of Shabbat. And I would also, you know, think that a, a nice way for us to end our, our study together of the laws of Shabbat is with a hope that soon in our time we will see a time where there aren't any swords and aren't any spears and aren't any weapons anymore. And instead, we can all go about on Shabbat with other ornaments of our choosing. It's been a pleasure to study with you. Thanks. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjofa.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.